here uh, evaluating him, trying to learn more about what he means, what he's like, what he said and did. Chances are you're still familiar with this story. The story we're going to cover this morning is a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people with only a glorified snack to work with. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and it's the one story about Jesus besides Jesus' death and resurrection that occurs in all four of what we call the Gospels. So the first books in the, in the second major section of the Bible, called the New Testament, the first four of those books are stories in, and recordings of Jesus' teachings. We, we refer to them as the Gospels, the good news of Jesus' life and teaching. And they all have different purposes. They all have a different spin on Jesus' te- on Jesus' life. Not that they contradict each other, but that they supplement each other. They have different emphases they want to communicate. So when something makes it in all four of them, for all their differences, you kind of sit up and take notice, and you wonder, what is it about this story that was important enough that none of them felt like they could leave it out? There's no question that it's one of the most public and powerful displays of Jesus' power. Uh, there was something about this event that galvanized people. We're going to see, after the, for those who saw him do it, who saw it live in the flesh, they actually tried to capture him and make him their king. They were so moved by it. Up until now, Jesus has been doing some miraculous things, but not that many, and not that many that were really public. So, so not that many people had seen them. Uh, it, it was only in certain regions that a crowd had gathered around what he had been doing. But this one, this one word traveled fast and long, so that even decades after Jesus' life, people were still talking about it. That's how it made it into all the Gospels. That's why we want to understand it together today. What we want to understand is not just the picture of his power that we're going to see today. We are going to, we are going to try to unpack that in all of its beauty. But we know, we've seen already in our study of John, that when he tells us about powerful things Jesus did, he's not just trying to tell us everything Jesus did. He's not just trying to impress us. But he chooses specific things that Jesus did that offer a picture of everything that Jesus came to do. What, what he calls signs instead of miracles. They're signs of the significance of Jesus and his work. And that's one, one, this is one of his signs this morning. So we want to we understand and unpack the beauty in Jesus' power, but we also want to, want to look through this story to, the, to some sort of clarity about Jesus' purpose so that we can understand more about what he is and what he came to do and how this story prepares us to love those things about him. That's where we're headed this morning. I want to begin by reading the story for you. So please stand with me if you found it in honor of God's word. As I read from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that the crowd, large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not be enough bread for each one of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, 
And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who'd eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The setting for this story is Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. We talked about this before. Israel's laid out really long. So take Tennessee and then turn it up on its head and you kind of get the shape of Israel. Jesus was from up in the north. That part's called Galilee. That was his hometown. That's where he grew up. A lot of his ministry so far that we've covered in John has happened up there. The rest of it has happened down at the bottom of Israel, the southern part called Judea, where Jerusalem was, and Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And John has been kind of jumping back and forth between those two locations as he tells us about the things Jesus did. Now we're back in Galilee. Now in Galilee is one of the places where he'd done some of the most amazing things so far. He hasn't done a whole lot that John's told us about, but what he has done, especially the eye-catching stuff, has tended to be in Galilee. He, it was there that, for example, a man came to, came to him with a, a son that was sick and on, near the point of death. And Jesus, from miles away, just speaks a word. And the son is healed on the spot. Now, in a, in a rural society like this one, you know, news travels fast. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everything about everybody. And they didn't need Twitter to get the word out that Jesus had healed this guy by a word. So Jesus comes back to Galilee, you can understand that they were ready for him. This huge crowd follows him to the other side of the sea. You can understand who was probably among that crowd. People who maybe themselves were sick. Maybe word had even traveled from Jerusalem that down there Jesus had healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He spoke a word and the man was healed. Maybe there were people who were sick. So they're flocking to him to try to get healed. Maybe some of them had family members near death. And they figure... Jesus did it once from a long way away, so maybe here on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he can heal my, my friend or my, my loved one back over in Cana. Maybe they were hoping that this Jesus they'd heard about was the one they'd been waiting for, the promised one, the Messiah. Maybe they wanted to see for themselves. For whatever reasons, they've come to him in droves. Jesus lifts up his eyes from the mountainside where he had gone with his disciples and he sees them coming and he has compassion on those multitudes. His first comment is not exactly what you would expect. His comment is a question. Where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? He's compassionate on them. He's concerned about their immediate physical needs. But he's also intentional. This question that he asks of Philip is meant to make a point and to set us up for what he really wants to show us. Look at verse 6. He was asking this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. What was he going to do? That's what, we're meant to, that's what we're meant to be asking as we come to this part of the story. Try to put yourself in the position of the first hearers. Try to put yourself in the position of those who were at this at this mountainside waiting to eat as opposed to in our position knowing what's going to happen and feel the tension building jesus sees them he knows they have to eat 
He knows what he's going to do. What is he going to do? Philip is one of the great understated characters in this story. He is definitely the one that I identify with. Philip is a realist. He's the one who knows what's not possible. His answer to Jesus' testing question, where are we going to buy bread? Well, Philip's answer is, we're not going to buy bread. It's not possible to buy enough bread. You can almost imagine him like doing the tabulations in his head. You know, he doesn't have a calculator, but he's the numbers guy. And he sees, he's surveying who's there, and he knows how much bread costs, and he's running the numbers in his head, and he comes up with a figure that's equivalent to eight months of salary. In, in, in our dollars here today, it's tens of thousands of dollars for, for taking U.S. averages. And even that much money, he says, wouldn't buy a bite for this many people. Philip is the one who needs evidence before he's going to believe anything. He's the guy who later on in the story, Jesus is in the upper room right before he dies. He's talking to his disciples. He's he's unpacking his life and purpose to them. And Philip has the density to ask him, Lord, just show us the Father. We want to see the Father. We want to see what God is like. He's been with Jesus for Jesus' whole ministry. He's one of his first disciples. He still hasn't seen enough. Show me more. He always wants more. He knew it wasn't possible on his terms. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. What was he going to do? Maybe you identify more with Andrew. Maybe he's a little bit more optimistic. I don't know. He at least acknowledges that we've got a starting place of sorts. Andrew's like, well, I got this kid here. Kid's got five barley loaves and a couple fish. Now, don't... Don't miss this. Don't mistake this. I mean, not that this will make that much of a difference, but we're not talking about nice, long, uh, uh, whole grain loaves here that you might get at Provence. And we're not talking about big, steak, big salmon steaks, big slabs of tuna here. No, we're talking about barley loaves. It's the, the bread of the poor. The nutritional value just wasn't there. It was, it was the lowest of the low. More like crackers, more like saltines. Think saltine crackers, like useless for you, but cheap. And instead of big slabs of salmon, think sardines. These were more likely a garnish. They were, the, the bread was the main meal here, not the fish. They were pickled fish, some sort of little bonus to, change, to add some flavor to the bread. This was, not, this was not delicious salmon steaks. We're talking about, maybe to put it in our terms, what Andrew brings to Jesus is a snack trap full of goldfish, basically. That's what he's got to work with. So he's not much more optimistic than Philip when it all comes down to it. He says, what are these for so many? But Jesus knew what he was going to do. What was he going to do? Where we can all identify with both of these characters and with so many others that Jesus meets through this, through this gospel of John is that their perspective, like ours, is almost always sharply defined and hemmed in by the natural, by physical limitations, by what we can experience in this life. They're locked in on physical laws, on invariable realities that have always governed the world. And they still, even after all they had seen, they still couldn't predict and rest in a power that breaks in from another world. The power of a creator 
who brings a taste of a new world into the somber limitations of this old world. Every detail so far and all of their richness, all of these specifics about how much money it would take to even provide a bite, about specifically what kind of snack we have on hand, about how many people there are and what the odds are that you could ever feed this many people. All these details and all their richness, they're all here to prepare us for what happens next, to get us ready, to get us focused on Jesus. Ultimately, we're not meant to be focused here on Philip or on Andrew or on the kid with the snack. It's not about these guys. They're props. We're meant to be focused in on Jesus who knows what he's going to do. What is he going to do? He has the people sit down to prepare for the meal. They had to be wonder what they were sit- wondering what they were sitting down for, huh? Then once they're, once they're sitting down on this nice, lush grass, Jesus gives thanks. It's typical for Jewish people of that day to give thanks, a traditional thanksgiving before a meal, just like it is typical in our culture to do the same. But just in their culture, just like in our, in our culture, when do you give thanks? You give thanks when you sit down and the table is spread full of food. You think about Thanksgiving dinner, you know, and you got the turkey and the dressing and all of it sitting there, weighing down the table, and that's when you give thanks for what's already there. You give thanks because it's there. Jesus gives thanks when he's got basically nothing to work with. What is he going to do? What must they thought about this? What must they be thinking here? Jesus knew he was going to create something from nothing, just like at the beginning. He is the Word through whom and because of whom all things exist and apart from whom nothing was made that has been made. After he's given thanks, Jesus starts giving out food and he keeps giving out food and he keeps giving out food and he keeps giving out food. What must that have looked like? It's tough not to go there in your mind. What were people actually seeing? They were were sitting there all around him. What were they seeing? It's almost not, no point in imagining it. What it looked like was nothing they had ever seen, that's for sure. He gives food till everyone had had not just a bite. Remember what Philip says. Here's the irony. Remember what Philip says. We could spend eight months' wages and not even give everybody a bite. And Jesus takes a snack and gives food out until everyone there had eaten their fill and there were leftovers. There were leftovers. Reminds me of the Sunday dinners that my grandma used to fix growing up. I mean, you cooked for the week, right? You ate, you started in on it on Sunday afternoon after church, but you ate on it pretty much all week. And that's what Jesus has done here. Not just a bite. These people are hurting when they get done. They got to loosen their belts, and there's more to come for later that night. Jesus has taken nothing, and he has turned it into a meal that filled the stomachs of everybody there, as many as ten to 20,000 people. When you consider that it wasn't just men, only men are numbered, but there were more there. There were women and children as well. The point here is that someone just brought heaven to earth. Someone just shattered the normal, the merely physical. That someone, this Jesus, must have unlimited power. This display of Jesus' power in this text has been a stumbling block for many in the last 50 to 100 years. 
the notion of Jesus as someone who can transcend the laws of nature, the invariable patterns that scientists are meant to study, that they depend on for all of their work. The notion that Jesus could break them seemed intolerable. It's inspired a lot of readings of this text to try to change its meaning, I think. that Readings like, for example, it's speaking of spiritual realities, that they left filled as if they had eaten because they were feasting on the words of Jesus. But ultimately, I, I just don't think you can read the text that way. It makes more sense to me to dismiss the text as false and to try to change it from something that the author expected to be describing as supernatural into something that you or I may have experienced in our lifetime, uh, leaving from a, an encounter with Jesus in a worship service and feeling good and full. It's more than that. No, he means for us to see something radically new breaking in. It makes more sense to dismiss it altogether, but friends, if that's what you're tempted to do with this text, if it doesn't fit in categories that you're, that you're used to employing for making some sense of the world, please don't immediately give up on it. Think about why it is that you would dismiss it that quickly. Is it because is it because you just can't imagine someone having power to break into what you know, to what you've experienced? Do you really feel comfortable suggesting and accepting that what you have experienced to this point is all that there could be? Do you feel like you stand in a position and it's such a height that you can look out over what is and say you're seeing it all? Don't put yourself in the position, as one philosopher put it, the position of the drunk who's lost his keys and only looks for those keys under a street light because you can see better there. Even more, don't put yourself in the position of the drunk who's lost his keys and decides that because he can see better under the street light, well, that must be where my keys are. Obviously, they're where I can see better. Well, maybe... Maybe there's more to this world than you can see. Ultimately, if there's a God at all, if there's a God at all, he has to have the power to break into the world that he made, to intervene in the laws that he set up without throwing those laws off kilter, to keep everything as is even while he breaks into it. And friends, you should want this God to be true. You should want this Jesus, the supernatural one. Because if Jesus doesn't have this kind of power, if he doesn't have an unlimited power to do what he will to save his people, then Jesus ultimately just can't do that much for you. Now, he might be a good teacher who can help you to understand yourself and the world better. He might be someone who can point you towards elevating yourself by following his principles He might serve as a sort of ladder for you to reach a different plane of existence, if you will. But ultimately, you can get those sorts of ladders anywhere, and those ladders all depend on you, friends, on you and on your ability to climb. Who will be there when you have fallen off? If Jesus doesn't have unlimited power, this kind of power, then he's not a kind of savior who can actually deliver you from what you can't fight off for yourself. Ultimately, it is this Jesus who is not here to give you more chicken soup for the soul style advice about your life. 
but who is here to transform your life and to prolong your life eternally, even beyond the grave. And the power we see displayed in this miracle is the same power that he aims towards you. And whatever it is that you're facing right now, this moment, his power is unleashed and offered to you in your life right now, if you claim it by faith. Think about the beautiful text in John 10 where Jesus is described as the good shepherd who stands and guards his flock, who lays down his own life for them so that they can live. And no, it's the same Jesus who makes that promise. It's the same Jesus who multiplied five crackers and two sardines into a meal for thousands of people. He can pull it off. When he says he can protect you, he means it. And he can deliver. You need this Jesus to be as powerful as he's described here in John 6. But to say that Jesus is for you and his power is not the same as saying that he's for whatever you want. This gets us to the next thing that we're supposed to see in this passage. It isn't just raw power that you can tap into and then aim at whatever you want it to be aimed at. It's a power that Jesus uses for a purpose that he has defined And it's a purpose that nothing could shake him from. Not even the raving, adoring crowds that saw him do this miracle. Remember the significance of signs in John. It is not just an impressive display of power. What Jesus does here is not just him wowing the crowds. It's a symbol of Jesus' purpose in coming here. John loves symbolism. We've seen it already a lot. It's It's just chock full of symbolism, most of it drawing from things that are talked about in the Old Testament. John loves to take those things and then put them into the life of Jesus and say, see, he's the one they were talking about. And he's certainly doing that here in our story. It's full of symbolism. And the symbols are what point us to who Jesus is and what he's come for. This sign points the way. Now, I want to take two points, two different layers of symbolism here in this passage to help us see what Jesus' purpose is. Both of them are pretty, pretty much on the surface of the text, but they have deep and penetrating value for our lives. But the first one I want to point out is, is sort of negative. It's drawn from the response of the crowds to Jesus, and it's, and it's John letting us know this is not what Jesus came to do with his power. And then the second point that I'll make is more positive. Here's what he did do. Here's how he is drawing from the symbols of the Old Testament to give you a picture of what he can do for you if you'll trust in him. So so first, here's the first one. This is more of a negative point, more what he didn't come to do. Jesus came, here's the point. Jesus came to give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. What is he going to do with his unlimited power? What is his purpose? This story points us to the fact that, that he comes to us to give us what we need, but not necessarily what we want. This comes from the response of the people to what Jesus has done and what Je- how Jesus responds to them. The people are stirred up with a nationalistic zeal. So the pa- we're told by John that this is a Passover time. And Passover for them was like July 4th for us, only way more intense. It was a time that they celebrated their birth as a nation. Their freedom, not from the tyranny of King George III, but from the the Egyptians, from Pharaoh and his armies who pursued them. It was a time when they were stirred up to remember that's who they are. 
And this year, when they celebrated Passover, they celebrated their freedom, their independence, their significance to God. They celebrated these things under the cloud of Rome's imperial rule over them. They were not free. They did not have the right to determine who they would be and how things would go for them. In fact, try to imagine what it would be like to live under an occupying force that had unlimited authority over your life, that had unlimited authority over your taxes, over how much money they would take from you, that had unlimited authority over your property, that could set your rights at will. Now imagine living under that kind of dictatorial authority with the the memory, the collective memory, maybe not something you live through, but something that, that gives your people identity of being different, of being free. They knew who they were because of the Passover, because of their liberation from Egypt, because of the, the promised land that God had given them, because of the great kingdom that David and Solomon reigned over. That's who they were. That's how they knew they weren't other nations. That's what it was to be Israel. And all of that was called into question by Rome occupying them and ruling over them with brute force. Now you can imagine why those people celebrating this holiday under those conditions would look at what Jesus has done and say, this is the one. This is the one who will establish the kingdom that will never end. He is the one who will get rid of all the Romans that we can't get rid of for ourselves. Let's make him king. Their references to one of Moses' promises of a prophet that would come, a prophet like Moses, but even greater. He mentions it in a book called Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. He looks ahead. Moses, nearing the end of his own life, looks ahead and says, there is one coming. My work is only a shadow of what he will do. And what did Moses do? He set the people free. He gave them laws that established their kingdom here on earth. It makes sense that when these people see Jesus' power, what they're thinking is, new Moses, new freedom, new laws, new kingdom. This is the one. And they weren't all wrong. He was the prophet that Moses had predicted. And he did come to be their king. And he did have the power to do exactly what they wanted him to do. To rid their land of an oppressive empire and set them free once and for all. He could have done that. Then and there. Where they go wrong is in their assumption that he will use his power to give them what they already want on their terms. Where they went wrong was in seeing Jesus as a means to their ends. To a future they had defined for themselves. They were confronting a question each of us confronts when difficult things happen to us. If Jesus has this kind of power, how could he not use it to meet the need that seems most significant to me? If he's not meeting the need that seems most significant to me, does that mean that he doesn't have unlimited power? This text is answering that question for us. It points us away from doubting his power. It calls us to assume he has power. And then to see that if he still isn't giving us what we want or delivering us from what we don't want, It must be because he knows better. Because he knows what we need better than we know what we need. Because he uses his power for purposes he establishes for our good on a level we can't even predict. 
That's precisely what the symbols in this passage are meant to point to. So the first thing we're supposed to take about Jesus' purpose from this story and what happens is that Jesus came to give us what we need, but not necessarily what we want. So be careful about, us, about weighing or judging his power based on how well it seems to be serving you at the moment. The second point is more positive. It looks ahead to what Jesus did come to do. And, and to see this, we have to see the symbols in this passage. This is where the story becomes a sign for us. Jesus came to give us what we need. What is it that we need? That clue is written all through this story. I want to draw it out through two of the symbols here. And then we're going to unpack these symbols in the next two or three weeks together. Because what we've done today is just look at the story. But most of the rest of John's chapter, this chapter 6, unpacks the story. It has Jesus talking about what he thinks went on. How he has Jesus defining for us the significance of what happened when he fed 5,000 people. We're only going to point toward it today. The first important sign or symbol in what's going on here is the Passover. Okay? This is the first clue for what Jesus has come to do with the power that is unlimited. They were right. The crowd was right to make a connection to Moses. It was Passover season and... Jesus knew that, and he chose that time on purpose to do this sign. But Passover was about, in the Old Testament, Passover was about more than just freedom from Egypt. You know, it's a story, it's a, it's a feast that celebrates God delivering his people by, by protecting them on the night when he took the firstborn son of those who were his enemies. And he called upon Israel to set, make a sacrifice to him, to sacrifice a lamb and to wipe its blood above their door. And in that sacrifice, he provided a way for Israel to be free, even though they deserved the same thing that the Egyptians got. Passover wasn't just about them being delivered from Egypt. It was about sacrifice for sin that made them holy. It was about God sending a substitute for his people so he could deliver them. And it wasn't just about deliverance from Egypt. It was picturing for us a greater deliverance that Jesus has come to fulfill. A deliverance not from the oppressive powers that control our daily lives, but from sin and death. And to deliver us from sin and death. To be the king that sets us free from those tyrannous powers over us. A greater sacrifice than the sacrifice of a lamb would be required. Jesus came to be king. But he would not become king by fighting off the powers that controlled Israel in that day. He would come, as one put it, he would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. What his people need is freedom, just as Moses provided and just as the one Moses promised would come to provide. But what they needed was not freedom from Rome, but freedom from death. And that's why, the next Passover that John records in this story, the one we're building to for the ultimate sign of who Jesus is and what he did, that next Passover happens when Jesus dies. And Jesus is killed, John tells us, at the very moment that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. He is killed for his people to set them free. He is the sacrifice that makes their sins null and void. He is the one who makes it possible for a kingdom to exist in which they have a place despite all their unworthiness. The fact that this meal happens at Passover is pointing us to the fact that Jesus came to be the Passover sacrifice. 
That points us to the second, the second symbol here in the story. One is Passover as the setting. The key, the substance here is the bread. Jesus is going to make a lot of, of uh, emphasis on this. He's going to have a huge emphasis on this in the rest of the chapter. That Jesus comes to be the bread that we feast on. To be the bread that is our life. Jesus comes, he says, as the bread of life. Not as the one who is powerful over all things so that he can give us the things that we want. But he, com- he comes not as the giver of good gifts, but as the gift. He comes to give us himself. Not just to sacrifice himself so that we can go free. Not just to be the ultimate Passover lamb. But he comes, he comes to give us himself to feast on. He comes to give us himself as a friend and a brother. As one who sets us onto a different level of satisfaction. He comes to be the bread that once we have eaten from it, we will never be hungry again. He comes to be the one thing we need for a good and full and happy life that won't be ended by death. Now, I think we tend to think about bread as sort of something you can have or not have. It's a little bit bland, you know. It's something that you dip into your soup to give it some flavor. Otherwise, you can kind of do without it. It's not slathered in butter or jelly or something. We're not big on it anymore. In this context, bread was life. Bread was the staple of the meal. Bread was the thing that you had to have to live. If you had bread, then anything else was icing on the cake. Everything else was just garnish. But bread was life itself. To tell us that Jesus has come as the bread of life, that here he's picturing what he's going to do for us, which is give himself to us for us to feast on until we are full and completely satisfied. He is telling us he is the source of life, that apart from him we can't live, but that in him we can live lives that are full Lives that are free of fear and worry and want. Free of death that hangs over our heads and calls into question the significance of anything we do with ourselves. Jesus is what is given in sacrifice to make us holy. And he is what is given to us as a substance that gives joy and satisfaction. Jesus is what we need. And he came to give us himself. The background to this passage is not just the Passover, but the promise of Isaiah 55. Come, you who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink. Come, buy bread, buy milk, buy wine. You who have no money, come and buy it without price. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Feast on me and you will know a joy that nothing in this world can rob you of. That is how his unlimited power is aimed. His unwavering purpose for which he employs all of his unlimited power is aimed at satisfying you and making you clean. Jesus can do it. Will you trust in him? Father, help us to believe that Jesus will satisfy us if we come to him and protect us from running to the things we have feasted on and been left hungry from all of our lives. We are constantly looking for better options. Satisfy us with an affection for Jesus and what he offers. So feasting on him, we will be set free from the emptiness that has held us back so long. We want to know Jesus as the one compared to whom all else is filthiness and emptiness, dust and ashes. We want to taste and see that he is good. Help us to do that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world. 